Hello, everybody. How y'all doing? On this Tuesday, can you believe we were off for three weeks? I can't. My goodness. We were two weeks getting in and out of Branson and all that stuff, and then came back and got COVID, and that was week before last, but, you know, it, it's this whole 10-day protocol business here supposed to follow that we're past, and um, we are glad to be back. So because this is Tuesday, we should be here every Tuesday until I go to Israel. My Monday class, not going to work that, that way. They don't get to meet the next two weeks. So I invited some of the Monday people who wanted to to join us in person or on um, online. We are, we can sort of see the end of Isaiah on Mondays from where we are. And I wouldn't quite say that about 1 Corinthians because there's a lot of meaty stuff yet coming up in 1 Corinthians. So, anyway, I don't have a lot in the way of announcements. Maybe I have the way of announcements, but I can't remember anything anymore, so <laughs> it doesn't do me any good. Um, so, remember if you told this guy, so don't uh, there we go. See, that's why we're a good team. I can't remember to tell you, you can't remember I told you, or something like that. So... Um, are there any announcements that I should be remembering about anything? Patty? Patty will be here. She was got delayed a bit. Oh, okay. She got. What happens is we get grabbed on the phone sometimes, and often it's church stuff, and we can't get off the phone terribly quickly. So, so anyway, that's what happens. So Patty's here, and I'm glad all of you all are here. So, since I can't think of any other announcements that I'm forgetting, I will open us up with prayer, okay? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be back together. It seems longer than three weeks. Can't believe it was last, August 2nd the last time we were here, but we are grateful to be here today, and we pray as we do every time that we gather that your Holy Spirit would, was, would fill us, would fill me with lots of energy and enthusiasm, and you would bring questions um, to our mind that, that um, about what Paul is writing, and we just pray that all of this um, helps to shape us and to renew us by the transformation of our minds so that we will know what your will is and what is good and what is pleasing to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I think we're, I think we're rolling. I think the online folks should be good. I think we're streaming. Um, the podcast is looking, you know, when I, when I go away for like, I mean, three weeks, it's crazy. I miss one week. I can't remember all the steps involved to make everything work right. But I think I have them. I got here early enough to, I think, remember what they are. So, okay, so we are in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's really embedded in a larger section from Paul to the Corinthians um, where he begins talking about something practical, um, which is the meat sacrifice to idols, and then expands on that. And then he gets into a long discussion that we had three weeks ago on August 2nd about rights. And we talked about rights, and we talked about our rights, and... We certainly live in a time when everybody is consumed with their rights about all kinds of things. 
and Paul wanted to talk to the Corinthians about, well, because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you should do something. And sometimes as Christians, we need to be ready to set aside some of those rights for our own good, for the good of others, for the good of the church. Um, we are free, but it's not a freedom from, really, it's a freedom for. It's freedom for um, the ability to, to serve God and to serve others. <clears throat> and today, he is leading to some more discussions about very practical things. He's going to touch again on um, sacrificing, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But it's all leading up to worship. It's leading up to Holy Communion. He's going to touch on the Lord's Supper a little bit in chapter 10 and chapter 11. We're going to come to a passage that is going to be very familiar. It's basically much of our communion liturgy comes from the 11th chapter in 1 Corinthians. So, um, when he begins chapter 10, he does it like a good teacher should. In other words, because he is going to do it by laying a strong foundation for later arguments, for later discussions, and that's that's always a good way to do it because I think a lot my my experience is that people often fall into long debates and arguments that touch on the surface of things but they don't you can't ever get them down to the foundation um, of their arguments and where they spring from and you really need to do that and so Paul is going to do that so he can bring the Corinthians along to where he wants them to be with regard to all these practical topics Yes, Patty. Huh. Well, if the if the mic's on in the room, the mic should be on Facebook. Um, let's see. What could that be? If you have my picture, Patty, you should have my voice. I, I, I know, but I, I'm just mentally going through. If you have my, if you can, I understand, I understand. If they have my video, they should have my audio because it's all one thing. It's all the stream, the stream. So my, okay, my advice would be to get out and to come back in. That's all I can think of, because ev everything, the streaming looks good from here, and it has to be looking good from here, because, I. No. I don't know. If it doesn't come, I, I, only thing I can do is lay after class, I'll let Kyle know that the video made it through the system but not the audio. Because on my end, it all looks like it should be. And I don't see how you could have the video and not have the audio. That makes no sense.
Okay, well, I'm going to stop the streaming and restart it. Uh-oh, hang on to your hats. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, now I'm going to restart the streaming, Patty. That's all I can do. Otherwise, it should work. But it goes, see, it goes through a box here at the church, which has had a few problems in the past. And if it doesn't work, there's nothing I can do. It'll be up on podcast later today. Okay. So Paul is laying this foundation. Kind of like you're going to build a building, you know. You want a building to have a good foundation. So Paul is going to build this foundation, and he is going to do it using Israel's history. And so we're going to come to a few places. I'll teach you a little bit of Israel's history. Some of these pieces are, are familiar to you. Some of them are perhaps not so familiar to you. So, all right. So we're just, I'm just going to plunge into chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, by that he means the family of Abraham, that's what he means, were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Okay? The cloud, the sea. So, what? What's the cloud? Okay, when the Israelites are escaping from Pharaoh, they are led by God, who during the day, his presence is is in this cloud that leads them forward and at night becomes a pillar of fire. Are you waving at me, Doug? No, everybody's had. Oh, okay. All right. So there is this cloud and they follow that cloud. If you've seen the movie Char with Charlton Heston, any of you seen that? Anybody? Yes. Anybody? Yes. Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? Yeah. Well, that's it. So, so they're, they're actually, you know, it's, we always say Moses is leading, them, but it's actually God who's leading them. So they are, they are following God who is, who, it's called a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God. And there are different kinds of theophanies in the Old Testament. One of them is in this pillar that is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Because at night you couldn't see the cloud. So that's what the cloud is. And under the sea, the sea is what? The sea is the Red Sea. This is the Exodus. Obviously, he's talking about the Exodus, the cloud and the sea. He's, so this is very Jewish. <laughs> this is very much how the New Testament writers work. They're very dependent upon the Old Testament. They, the Old Testament itself is always looking back to the Exodus because it is the great salvation story the great salvation story um, in the Old Testament for the Jews. Um, God saved them there, saved them from bondage to slavery. So Paul says, our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Now they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now this is where you can't be overly literal, okay? Really, not much of the Bible. 
literalness will just become very flat and wooden and you will miss the meaning. So they are baptized into Moses in the Exodus because they crossed the body of water. They crossed the body of water in the Red Sea and they emerge on the other side as what? A no longer enslaved people, slave to, to, to Pharaoh, they are now a free people. Their bonds of slavery have been broken. And all of that can be analogized to baptism. It can be analogized to Christian baptism, and that's all Paul is doing. It's just metaphorical. It's, it's, he doesn't, Paul doesn't think that the crossing of the Red Sea is like being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, but here, here's an aside. When I, when I teach baptism, one of the points in my argument for baptizing infants is that when they cross the Red Sea from slavery to freedom, from death to life, because of course the Exodus is precipitated by what? the death of the firstborn, from death to life, do they take the babies with them? They darn right they take the babies with them. They're not going to wait until the, well, you got to stay over here in slavery until you're allowed to make this decision for yourself. <laughs> no, they sweep up the babies in, the ar in their arms, they carry them across, and at some point in their life, those babies will grow up and have to make a decision for themselves about participating in the family of God and about worshiping Yahweh. And if they choose not to, they could wander off and go on to other places as, as some did and more would do later. So in that way, I think that story of the Exodus is helpful for why we baptize infants because we are baptizing them into the family. And then when they grow up, they get confirmed. So what's confirmation, which is confirmation of eighth graders here? It is when they step forward and say, okay, in, in my own mind and in my own words, I am now a Christian on purpose, not just because my parents dragged me across the Red Sea, metaphorically. Okay? That trigger any thoughts or questions? So... Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul is getting quite metaphorical here. So let's talk about the spiritual food first. So when he means... Well, when he says spiritual, what do you think he means? Does he mean it's like pretend food in the sense that you couldn't actually see it or something? No. He means it's not, it's, it's not natural. No, you're not going to grow crops of this food. This food is what? In the story of the Exodus. This food is the manna, right? They don't, they don't plant the manna. They don't tend the fields with the manna. It just shows up every day. And they go out to collect it, and they quickly discover they can't keep it. They have to go out every day. 
to get their daily bread. They have, and they can't come home and <clears throat> plan on, like I said, they can't store it. They also find that everybody gets what they need. They just get what they need. That, that's kind of how it works because God meets their daily needs. So that's the spiritual food that Paul is talking about. It's coming from God. It's not like the, the, the food of this world. And then there is the spiritual drink. Now that one's trickier because we don't, we don't talk about this story as much. There is, when, when the Israelites flee Mount Sinai, I mean flee Egypt on their way to Mount Sinai, they, God helps them, provides for them three things, food, water, and protection. So the food story is a manna story. The water story is the story where God tells Moses to basically, you know, go. the people are whining, we're going to die of thirst and stuff. And um, Moses hits a rock and the water comes spewing out and the people are, are able to drink and survive. Gosh, I saw that the people of Jackson, Mississippi wish there was such a rock. I can't believe I, the entire city is without drinking water. Yeah, wow, wow. Um, so, and just to go on, it's not part of this, but just to go on, the third thing is protection because they are pursued by a centuries-long enemy called the Amalekites. And they're going to do battle with the Amalekites. And it's a funny story because Moses is to stand there with his staff up, and when he's standing there with his staff up, there the tide of battle is in the favor of the Israelites. But he's an old guy and he gets tired. I love that part. <laughs> and his arms start to droop and if his arms drooped and fell the tide of battle would turn against the Israelites. So like Aaron and somebody else, maybe Joshua, they come over and they hold up his hands, right? So that the tide of battle and they, are, and they survive. So again, the idea being that you can see even then with the arms up and down that this is God's deal. So the water, is, the food is God's deal, the water is God's deal, the safety from enemy is God's deal, it's all God's deal. The exodus is God's deal. It is God's salvation of these difficult, whiny, recalcitrant people. Okay? God had made a pledge. God had made a promise long before to Abraham. And God made promises at Mount Sinai. And God is the great promise keeper, not just the promise maker. God doesn't just make promises. God keeps those promises. Even if it's not on a time frame or in a way that we might have conceived of, God is the great promise keeper as well as the great promise maker. So in verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the, the spiritual, the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Okay? So for Paul, the presence of God is the presence of Christ. Maybe that's a helpful way to think about this right now. That the presence of God with these Israelites in the wilderness is the presence of Christ. 
So how is it that the presence of God is the presence of Christ? I'm into asking questions today, aren't I? Yes. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully and completely God. Not all of God, but fully and completely and utterly God. And not just a part of God. He is fully God. And, and the Holy Spirit, same thing. The Spirit of Christ, as Paul refers to Jesus one time, same thing. So, yes, um, in the beginning all things were created by, through, and for Jesus. Yes. Okay? So Paul is doing this all this metaphorical stuff because he's all grounding it in the history of Israel so that they can make a linkage between what God did in the Exodus with what God is doing now in the first century with Jesus, the apostles, the spreading of the good news, and the building of these churches, these communities of faith, these colonies of, of a new human race. So it's our conduit. What's that? It's our conduit. Our, our conduit. Okay, so Susan says Jesus is our conduit. If we, if I'll go with that. If if you see it as, as he, remember he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not. He's not simply um, doesn't lead us to the bridge to heaven. He is the bridge. He is the whole thing. He's the conduit. He's the way. He's the bridge. He's the whole thing because in him lies salvation. As Arthur said on Sunday, in him lies the solution to the problem. The problem being what? The problem being sin. The problem being that, you know, for Gentiles, that's the quickest summary of it. For the Jews, um, the, it's the same problem, but it's, it's filtered through their inability to keep the law. But it's all, un, it's all underneath it, the same thing. And the problem, by the time you get to Jesus, it's clear the problem is unsolvable. Because it's been how long? By the time you get to Jesus, it's been 1,500 years, depending on if people don't agree about how to count it, 1,500 years since the Exodus. No, no, no. It's an unsolvable problem, which presents God with an unsolvable problem because God made a promise. And if the problem can't be solved, God can't keep that promise. But God keeps his promises. Hence, capital D, D dilemma. Right? And so God does something utterly unimaginable. He provides a solution that nobody would have ever thought of. He himself will become flesh, become human, become a Jew in the person of Jesus. Right? Who has always been, is, and the uh, Jesus who has always been, is now and forever, ever shall be, takes on human flesh, the incarnation and will be that faithful Jew. Mike. Is it correct to think then that any time we or anybody in the Bible runs into a theophany, now that you know what that is, you know, you see a physical manifestation of God yes. in our world, that is Christ, that is Jesus, that is the physical, so the column of fire is Jesus, the cloud is Jesus, the water 
coming out of the rock with Jesus? In the sense that, yes, Jesus is fully and completely God. So, you know, a more, I think a more biblical way really to do it is to see that the, because if you get too much like that, it's easy to ignore the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit Jesus? No. The Holy Spirit is fully and completely God, but the Holy Spirit is a Jesus, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus the Father? No. Is the Father Jesus? No. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Son loves the Spirit. But no, they aren't the same. See, this is where, this is where, this is where all, and this is where all the diagrams and everything, they end up breaking down. So I'll, I'll, let me talk about this a second. The diagrams end up breaking down, and they break down because it's very difficult to talk about God. So pull up in your mind right now an image from the Webb telescope. And pull up in your mind alongside that some thought about who created all that stuff. And it may be a way to remind you that when you come to God, <laughs> the mysteries of God resist our explanation. So what we often do is talk about what we don't mean. The via negativa in theology. In my class a couple of weeks ago, Lauren used a couple of big words to talk about using language that describes what something is not. That is that's usually the healthiest way to talk about the Trinity. And so, for example, classic ones, I haven't talked about this in a while, probably used in every Sunday school in America one time or another, is water, which can be ice and liquid and steam. And so the teacher explains this, and the little kiddies go, oh yes, that is great, that's great, but it's wrong. <laughs> It's wrong. It's wrong because when the water is liquid, it's not steam. When the water is steam, it's not ice. But that's not how the Trinity is. There has the Trinity has always existed, the triune God. In the unity of the triune God, there are three persons, each of whom has always been, is now, and always shall be, and they do not constitute parts of God. Each is fully and completely God. And so your mind starts to bend and break. The egg, that was another one. I probably used that in the past sometime. I, no, the egg, that doesn't work. The egg shell, well, I mean, I eat eggs. I had eggs for breakfast this morning. Did I put the eggshell in my eggs? What do you think? No, because the eggshell's disgusting. So, right? I didn't put the eggshell in my eggs. The eggshell is not the white, and the white is not the yolk. They're just, there's three different parts that together constitute an egg. That's not the Trinity. God is not in parts. Sometimes you'll come across creeds and things where, you know, or statements, liturgy sometimes. It's, I think it's probably happened here. Where the Trinity is, is, is expressed as creator, redeemer, sustainer. And have you ever seen that? Creator, redeemer, sustainer. Not good because it makes it sound like the way to understand the Trinity as in the role of things that God is doing. God was the creator, 
then he was the redeemer in Jesus, and now he's the sustainer in the spirit. No! Jesus was the creator. Go read Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Jesus is the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that there's a lot of ways to get the Trinity wrong. And that's often very helpful in terms of helping us get more comfortable with the the ineffable, I don't know where that word just came from, the ineffable mysteries of the Trinity. And as I often say, and Arthur gets a little mad at me sometimes about this, I, I, I think he's bolder than I am, but I think he might actually be, no, I won't say that, wrong sometimes. I didn't say that. Okay? <laughs> I, I, I think there, you can only get so close to an understanding of the Trinity. A way to do it is with the piano, and we won't look into that, but you can only get so close. And diagrams, two-dimensional flat diagrams, convey information such as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father, and different, but the diagrams can be also be very misleading. Like up in our rose window, it was somebody decided to, at the beginning of the church to put a fleur-de-lis in there. That doesn't work at all. That's a long ways from a reasonable two-dimensional two diagram of the Trinity. So anyway, so I, 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 where I started with Mike's question about this is the way Scripture does this is to lift up the Spirit who is the empowering presence of God. So if every time you put Jesus in there, you are neglecting the role of the Holy Spirit. And so Mike could come back at me and say, but Paul talks about the Spirit of Christ. And I'm going to say, yeah, you're right, Mike. He talks about the Spirit of Christ. But we should strive to speak about these things in the biblical way. Because in the biblical way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, Shekinah, wisdom, the Holy Spirit is God present. And who is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So yes, there we go. I don't know, that's the best I can do. So does the chord, like with music, do, do you ascribe to that? See, what, if, see, Susan's a music person. So yes, if you take a, a um, C major chord, C, E, G, right. and you play the notes, mm -hmm. right? you have the chord, the one, and still retained, if you listen closely, are the individual notes. And not only that, there are harmonics that go on, right? So the chords vibrate one another. So in that aural space, A-U-R-A-L, in that aural space, you can, you, can, you can maybe get a little closer because you're not limited to two dimensions like I would draw on a piece of paper to, under, to, to the Trinity, but still, right? I'll still maintain, if you think you've solved it, you haven't. And we can talk about the error you have made along the way. Because all the great heresies of the early church rose up around the question of Jesus. And that is the question that's the entry question into the questions of the Trinity. Okay. Yes, anything else? Okay.
the rock and the and the water and and the the um, uh, and, uh, the, um, the escape from Egypt. I mean, how do it, it, how does he relate to these pagans? I guess the non I call them pagans. The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Yeah. People, the people who didn't grow up, they didn't grow up Jewish. He didn't grow up telling the stories of Abraham and David and all the rest of this stuff. And so Diane's question is, well, I mean, how does this have meaning for them? Because this, these are things that they would have to what? Be taught. Okay. They would have to learn. Okay. You know, they would, they, Paul would come in town and he'd preach Christ and him crucified and he would do it in the context of the story told by the Hebrew scriptures and so if you were a Gentile you would need to learn that. It's perhaps why um, there was a really, I'm, I think probably a good practice in the early church. We know that in the early church for some time, maybe a century or two centuries, baptism of an adult coming into the faith was something that happened after three years of study. After three years of catechism, they would, um, they would do that. that. That's where the idea of catechism comes from. This idea that there are actually oh, things you need to learn. It's not enough to slap an I love Jesus bumper sticker on your car. There are things to learn because if you don't learn them, you are like what Paul talked earlier in this letter. You're like children who can only be given milk. You're like, little, you're like little boats. It could be blown here and there. You have to learn. And so the Gentiles did have to learn. And, but Paul is going to come at this through the Israel story. And why is that? Why does Paul want to come at this through the story of Israel? Because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the culmination of the story that began with Abraham. He's not he, did, he doesn't like he parap I used to get asked this question a lot. I don't get asked so much anymore, which I don't know, I'll take as a victory. Okay, well, why couldn't have Jesus have just been born in London or Moscow or Paris or something? No! Jesus is the culmination of a story that began in Abraham. He's not a one-off in that sense, others. His, the story begins with Abraham. And Jesus is part and parcel of that story. And the reason Christians kept the Old Testament was because they knew that you couldn't understand the meaning and the significance of the cross for yourself or for the world without the Hebrew Bible. I'm doing, I'm taking Monday, the Monday class through Isaiah now. It's filled with these passages that when you read them, you can't, a Christian can't help but think of Jesus, right? Isaiah 51, you, tell, you, can't, you can't possibly read them as a Christian, I don't think, without thinking of Jesus. Um, he is the culmination of that story. He is the suffering servant of Israel. But if you jettison the Old Testament, ah, you lose all that. So, okay, Diane, enough? Anything else? Oh, we're back, baby, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Yes. I've noticed recently a series of commercials on TV by TV pastors saying all you need to do is pray this prayer with me and say the prayer and you 
I do. So for those of you who can't hear, Rich is asking about some commercials he's seen on TV where somebody has bought time to come on and say, okay, you pray this prayer and you're saved. Like the prayer is like magic or something, right? It's like a magical incantation. So my immediate question for that person was, well, I'm praying this prayer about someone named Jesus. Who is Jesus? Better not give me a flip answer to that question. <laughs> right? Right? The Christian faith is about coming to put your trust. Your trust. That's a big word. We don't like to trust people and things, do we? We don't. Take my word for it. We don't. <clears throat> and because of experience, you see, right? Right? So um, we're asked to put our trust, our faith, our eternity in the hands of this Jesus. Well, you need to know who Jesus is. You can't trust someone you don't know. Nobody will do that. Not really. You can mouth the words, you could say the prayer, but the prayers aren't magic. Jesus says, you know, people come to me and say, Lord, Lord. Well, that's not enough. That's not it. Those are just words. You know, it's about, it's a, it's about, it's about the heart. Um, it's not even about intellectually believing the correct set of doctrines about this man named Jesus. It's about trusting Jesus. That's what's the great thing about the Greek word pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. -I it is the word of faith. It means faith in, in the Greek. And it gets changed to belief a lot in English New Testaments, but that's misleading. It's about faith, 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 trust, trust, trust. And so, no, I don't like those commercials very much. And I, they make a joke of the early Christians who said, you know, you need to have a three years period of study before you're going to get baptized. So, no. It should just, the commercials should be an invitation to become and to begin to know Jesus and leave it at that. Not a, not, not a magic travel pass. That's my opinion, clearly stated. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. Verse 3 just to wind our way back in here. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. How many of the Israelites who left Mount Sinai made it into the Promised Land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Now I think I'm right about that. Even Moses doesn't. They do just die off because they will not trust God. The great, the scene is set for the centuries that would follow. And it, you, your touchstone for this, the place that you can go to to get this clearly is, is when they make the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses is up meeting with God. I know they get impatient. I know they get tired of waiting, but goodness, they should never have listened to Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> just, 
back to the movie. I can't help myself. I should not do that. I know, but I, I just can't help myself. So yeah, so so it, that terrible, terrible, terrible sin, which is repeated in the history of Israel with the golden calf, after the death of um, Solomon. It just is this ever-present reminder that despite their great promises to God and the great provisions God had made for them and despite God's relentless pursuit of them, God was not pleased with them. You know, we in, in Romans 12, in the first chapter, 12, 1 and 2, what Paul says, you know, we, we, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we do know what pleases God, right? We do know what is good. We do know what the will of God is, the moral will of God. Uh, yes? So I just want to test for understanding. I heard you say that all the people that left Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years only two of them? Well, the, the, the recalcitrant regeneration, it's 40 years. Okay. So were there babies being born? Yeah. Yes. But the people who had rebelled against God, no. Even Moses does not enter the promised okay. land. Okay. So, there, so uh, uh, of the original group is the way I should really put it, right? The, the fish shakers um, at God. Because there's a whole group who do enter the promised land because Joshua leads them across you know the Jordan River so uh, uh, thank but, you for letting me clarify that but I also remember you telling us in the past that literally there were hundreds of thousands of Jews that left Egypt <clears throat> okay so the count in the story of the Exodus is 600,000 men which translates into 2 million people could it actually be 2 million people no, it couldn't actually be two million people. But it was a lot. It was a whole bunch. The reason I say it can't be two million people because we know something about the populations of the ancient world. That's an enormous amount of people. There just weren't that many people to go around back in those days. And so, but is it an enormous amount? Yes. Okay, and do the biblical writers use numbers to convey truths. Yes, they do. And so they use the numbers of the people to convey the truth that this is a mighty act and a mighty people that got us saved from the Exodus. Okay? All right. Okay. Okay. On to verse 6 today. Now these things occurred as examples. You know, those who, how does the quote go? Those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. There are various versions of that. I think it goes back to some philosopher guy more than 100 years ago. I'm sure there were versions before that. but. History is simply looking back for our learned experience. And if you cut yourself off from that, you're going to have to relearn every lesson 
over and over. That's what we as parents, what, what do we try to do with our kids? We try to help them learn from our experiences. Don't do it. You're driving yourself over a cliff. It's a disaster, I know, because I drove myself over that cliff. Do they listen to us? No, because they have to drive themselves over the cliff for them anyway, but there you go. Okay, so verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul, Christian living for Paul is a concrete way of living that transcends envy and greed and lust and violence and the rest. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. Idolaters are those who worship anything other than the God who is. And whatever that lies at the whatever lies at the center of your life, at the center of your days. If an alien followed you around for a month and told you what your life was centered upon, that is what you worship. It might be God, it might be money, it might be sex, it might be power, it might be family. That's a tricky one, isn't it? If it's anything other than God, it's idolatry. And it weak it has the it, it the fractures the fractures begin to develop and they begin to show and we, then we wonder well where did we get off track where did we go wrong do not be idolaters our worship our true and faithful worship in which is not which is a much bigger word than what happens on sunday our true and faithful worship, our true and faithful service is, um, should be for God and God alone. So Paul writes, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's from the great Edward G. Robinson party at the bottom of Mount Sinai. That's what that's from. Okay? We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. The biblical witness about human sexuality is that there is nothing casual about it. There's our dogs and cats, and one time we saw sea turtles, no, no giant land tortoises. That was that's a memory. <laughs> Try, trying to do it. <laughs> that's all. Those are all. None of those creatures are made in the image of God. For humans, our sexuality is something else, and it's powerful and it's mysterious and we are it's so powerful and so mysterious that 
we are over-sexualized. As human beings, the way God made us, our dogs and our cats, they aren't built to have sex throughout the year, are they? We are. We might not, but we are. In, all, in physical characteristics, we are. It's all kind of outsized. And it says something to us about about human sexuality being something special, God-given, not casual, and meant for, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, the marriage bed. So Paul is very focused always on sexual immorality being a symptom of larger problems. Um, and too, so often, this, this is going off the work of Sarah Rudin, that the underlying word here, um, I didn't look it up for today, it's probably pornia. That word pornia in the Greek is, is, speaks to treating someone as an object, objectifying someone sexually. It would be the most common way to do that. Is that not the most common way we get this wrong? Should we ever objectify someone in any way? Should we ever see someone else as an object? No, we should not. not it's not just sexual even. I've, I've, I've worked in the cor corporate America for years. It's easy in corporate America to see people as objects, to see so-and-so as nothing more than a spreadsheet person and just sort of use them up. But all of us are unique, whole creatures made in the image of God and loved by Jesus. The person that you find the most terrible, disgusting, annoying, evil in the world is loved by Jesus. Let that statement bring you up short sometimes because it's true. It's true. And, and so, and yes, this is the culture in which sex is out of control. It's just, you know, we talked about it that, that in here. It's just out of control. And people worried about their sons and their daughters and stuff in this world. But for Paul, it's, 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 it's a manifestation of a deeper issue. That begins with what? It begins with idolatry. It begins with worshiping anyone and uh, anything other than the God who is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you know, 2,000 years have gone by and still happening. Exactly. I mean, fourth, I mean, we're going to be gone, but 2,000 years from now, it'll probably still be happening. 2,000 years from now, they'll still need Jesus. I mean, because the problem... You see, the problem is it doesn't, we can't fix the problem, and so the problem doesn't get fixed in the sense of, of our day-to-day -day lives. We have to throw ourselves on Jesus, and we are reborn, and some of the problem is still with us, but it won't be all resolved until Jesus returns. But we can't do it. That's the great, that's the great secret. Yes, so I'm reading some articles lately that are that want to talk about what people are finding and what they're not finding in that regard. But irregardless, 
the problem of sin is something that we can't solve. One of the great weaknesses in our culture, I think, is that there are too many people who think that they can find a therapist or a program or a way in which they can eradicate what's wrong with them, and they can't. I remember, remember that old book, Don? I'm okay, you're okay, from the late 70s? I'm okay, you're okay? That's crap. No, we're not okay. <laughs> I didn't really get that so much at the time, but I get it now. No, we're not okay. Look at the world around you. You think we're okay? No, we're not okay. We need, we need rescue. We need, a, we need a rescue ship to show up. And take me and... I'm thinking now of that volleyball. What volleyball got rescued off the island? Wilson. Yeah, take me and Wilson off that island. <laughs> uh, so I was, you know, I, I was asked about that one time by, this was years ago. Kathy Sutherland asked me about that. She said, you know, one day I came to realize that, because you would think that after 2,000 years of talking about Jesus, that we wouldn't have so many of these problems anymore, okay? But every generation has to come to know Jesus for themselves. And I will tell you, who, who led the way on the end of slavery? It was Christians. Who created hospitals? It was Christians. Who created a lot of the pieces of a kinder world that we all take for granted? It was Christians who did that over the course of the last 2,000 years. So there is a lasting effect of 2,000 years of Christianity, even if it doesn't get credit for it. But the problem of sin is still with us and it will be with us and we're fools if we don't acknowledge it because if you don't acknowledge it you're not going to to, to know what to do now to look ahead in Paul what Paul doesn't want to hear from people is that well okay alright I'm saved by grace that's it I'm a screw up I'm going to always be a screw up and alright I'm grateful Jesus took me and Wilson off this island. <laughs> Paul would say, get up. No. Do better tomorrow. Be kinder. Be more compassionate. Help somebody. Sit down with somebody and talk. Do something. Then the next day and the next day and the next day. So he's, you know, I, I picture Paul metaphorically grabbing people's lapels and shaking them and says, come on. Come on. There's work to be done. You've got to live out this life you've been given. So, I try. We can all try. When we, when we fail, we fail. When we fail, we try, we try some more. Okay. So, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. I should have looked up exactly that reference. I don't know where it is in that story. 
We should not test Christ. We should not test God, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. That's another Old Testament story where they are having to deal with poisonous snakes. And it, it, the, the message is that we should, we're not here to test God. God has demonstrated God's faithfulness and God's relentless pursuit of us over the entire biblical record and even to today. Because I know that in my own case, just to make one example, God's probably offered me 50 chances to come around and I guess I finally took one, you know, there we go. So it's, it's how it is. God is just, just, is, is just relentless. But again, part of our modern or postmodern world is a tendency to put God in the witness stand. And we want to test God and question God. And we're only going to believe in a God that somehow seems suitable for us failing to recognize that our minds are clouded by sin, which makes that a useless project. Anyway, okay. And do not grumble, he says in verse 10, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. So all of this, what's the point of all of it? The point of it is, there's a history of Israel about a people who were idolaters, and they were rebellious, and they didn't trust God. What's the basic reason that they don't enter the promised land after going from Mount Sinai? Because you remember the way that I never under, well, I didn't understand until a long time ago how the story worked. After they're given the law, they leave Mount Sinai and they make a beeline to the promised land. They don't want to take them 40 years to get there. Good grief. They make a beeline for the promised land. And what happens when they get there? They chicken out. They don't trust God because they send some spies in and some of the spies come back and said, oh my gosh, the people are bigger. They're giants. They're like bigger than grass. They're grasshopper. No, 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 we can't do it. So they chicken out. They don't trust God who said, just go, go. And so God says, well, okay. To put it in language I'd use today, you're adults. All right, you're adults. If you don't want to go, I'm not going to make you go. You're adults, so go on. You know, when you've all died, I'll let your children enter the promised land. But sure, if you're not going to trust me, you're not going to do as I tell you to do because I do know better, then just go. And they do, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation dies, and then the succeeding generation enters the promised land. Okay, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom, this is a big phrase, on whom the ends of the ages have met. Or the, I don't like the fact that they put the culmination of the ages. That's, I like the end of the ages. That's the way it's always been. The Christians are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. 
What is he talking about? These two ages. The age to come and the present age. These two ages have met. They are coexisting at the same time. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. Here's that other diagram. Okay? This age, the age to come. <clears throat> Paul and us, we're here. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. It is this base level understanding by Paul that the kingdom of God arrived in um, the kingdom of God arrived in Jesus. So these things happen verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you would think you are standing firm, this is a warning about hubris. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. <laughs> That's like something a mother would say. <laughs> no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. The temptations people face, are they're not unique. They're repeated over and over from person to person and from time to time in our lives, right? And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now what do you think Paul means there? You're strong enough to stand up to it. This is Paul with his hands on the lapels. You are strong enough to stand up to it. I know it's enticing. There are bright lights over there and it's one o'clock in the morning. But get in your dang car and go home. Okay? You can do this. You can resist it. Um, there are some really good novels written about temptation, of course, and about facing temptations. And of course, there are temptations in life. And of course, we do, we do give in to them. But when we give in to them, it's because we've turned, we're in that, we're turning away from God. We're strong, another way, we're stronger, than, I think Paul, I, so we're stronger than we think. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Hands on the lapels. You're stronger than you think. You can do this. You can do this. In you know, people, we live in a time, maybe it's always been, probably always been this way, but certainly in recent decades, there are corners of uh, parts of Christian America that are very much consumed with Satan. And there are a lot of people who think Satan does all kinds of things to people and everything. But the biblical witness is simpler than that. The biblical witness is straightforward. The biblical witness is that Satan tempts Period, paragraph, end of story. Temps. He can't give you a disease. He can't wreck your car. He tempts. He tempts. He tempts. And I think Paul is saying that we 
who have been reborn into new life can stand up to those temptations. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So, um, it's a reason to live a life where God is present with us. This is what I would tell my kids if they really ask me. You need to live a life where God is present with you every day. Every day. Not just on Sunday morning, not just at choir practice, not just when you're up at the, doing the storehouse, not when you're whatever good thing you're doing up here. That's great. Not diminishing any of that, of course. But we, we need to have God present and with us and sense that present all of the time. And there are small practices that Christians have used for a long time to do that, right? One is praying every day. Some Christians will carry small um, crosses or tokens or little rocks. We used to carry, remember when we had, to, we had those clear back baptismal rocks here at St. Andrew, little pieces of the glass because we did a remembering of the baptism. This was years ago. And we carried those with us for a while. There's, there, they, are, they are rememberings. I've counseled some men who have, I've talked to to keep something like that right on their desk at work. Right there. So, so it's constantly reminding constantly there's trying to live with God present grace at every meal simple practice actually Patty and I started that because there was a woman in a covenant group that we belonged to almost 20 years ago named Bobby Flowers who said you should do this Bobby's a very direct person if you don't know her and she said really you should and we said, okay, we will. <laughs> and we did, and we have been ever since. And grace in meals, whether you're at home or out, is another way of keeping God present. And when you're out, it is a powerful witness to people. You'd be surprised how many people have come up to us over the years and thanked us for saying grace in public. Almost like it's a little, like they're a part of a group of secret Christians. A little waiter will come up. He goes, "Oh, I saw what you did. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. I love that. Thank you, thank you." And he scurries off, and, right? Like he can't. So, lots of little things like that um, that Christians have done to to because if if you think that it you know, two o'clock in the morning when all the bright lights are flashing, you can instantly place yourself in the full presence of God to get you through this. That would be, might well be foolish. I don't know. Thoughts, questions, anything on all that? Okay, so... 
when we come together next week, we're going to talk about the stuff that he's been building. Everything today, Paul's been building toward. He's been building toward talking some more about food sacrificed to idols, and he's going to begin to get into the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a practice, and it's very clear that Christians from the earliest days were practicing the Lord's Supper in very much, very, very, very much the same way we do today. Except theirs was more of a meal and ours is hardly a snack. Unless I give you your bread, and I'm told I sometimes give a, a lunch <laughs> with when, when, when I do that. So, in any event. So, is there anything else that y'all would like to chat about before I close us in prayer? Yes. Okay, so here's, so here's the thing. <clears throat> so let's say, have you ever been a runner? Not really. Not really, she says. That means she has been. Okay, so let's just say, let's just say you were gonna train, train for a marathon. You really wanna do it, you're a runner, you know, and so <sighs> on one end of the scale is, I can hardly stand up when I get out of bed in the morning right on the other end of the scale is I can run 26 miles is there anything in between those two yeah sure there is and you can train yourself to be able to run better and better so the choice is that being a sinner or being free from all sin it, right there's this whole thing of living of of living a good life you want stuff to you want a life that is fulfilling, a life where goodness rebounds to you? Then be a person who is kind and compassionate and helpful and willing to listen. And all that stuff comes back because that's, that's, that's like the calculus of, of humanity that God has created. Is that It's what we all want. And why so many people forget that, I don't know. They think they can find what they seek out of through, through pride and envy and greed. They, but but you, you'll never do that. You'll never, you'll never find the life that you want nor the life that you were made for. So, yeah, so <laughs> there's a lot of space between being a sinner and being free of sin, okay? We are free of sin in the sense that we have already been saved, but there's a that's, that's, that's one part of the end. That's one side of the end. The other end is that we have to work out our own salvation, as Paul put it. That we have to work on this life of being, of, of showing people and living out the fruit that, that comes from our rebirth, this fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that Arthur was talking about. Okay, anything else? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, just hold us close. Help us to help us to grasp that the life that you desire for us is a life characterized by love and compassion and kindness and helpfulness and patience and peace and gentleness. Help us to be those people every day. And when we fail to be those people, 
just just help us get up the next day and 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 do it again always striving to be ever truer disciples of Jesus learning more from our master learning more from Christ all this we pray in his name amen <music>